Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we're going to be exploring the extraordinary destruction of the Mongol invasions of the Middle East in 1218, and the period of reconstruction that followed. In the mellifluous Persian phrasing of the Persian historian Javani, Amadan du Kandan du Sochdan du Kushtan du Bordand Uraftan. They came, they uprooted, they burned, they killed, they looted, then they left. But then the Mongols came back again and again, every summer for decades. And over the course of around 40 years, the Mongols had managed to subdue, conquer, destroy the whole jigsaw of states that had made up the medieval Middle East. What was more troubling for Muslims was that after six centuries of being in the regions which they controlled, the ruling classes of the Middle East, now the Muslims had gone from being the rulers to the ruled. What was more, they're ruled by a people, the Mongols, who followed a religion, if it could be called that, in medieval terms, that wasn't one of the recognized religions of the book, Christianity and Judaism, or even Zoroastrianism. The Mongols were an entirely unknown entity. They might as well have been alien invaders. But then, as is so often the case in history, people adapted. Over the next 55 minutes or so, we're going to be exploring that period of destruction and the decades of gradual reconciliation, pacification, the conversion of the Mongols, and the interplay of cultures from across Eurasia that rebuilt the Middle East in new ways that were not like those that had come before. Joining me in this conversation is Nicholas Morton. He's an associate professor of history at Nottingham Trent University and is the author of The Mongol Storm, Making and Breaking Empires in the Medieval Near East, which is published by Basic Books in 2022. Hello, Nick. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hi, Niall. Nice, nice to meet you. Well, we're going to be talking today about the, the cataclysmic events and the great sort of geopolitical and in other terms you'll be telling us the game-changing uh consequences of the the mongol invasions and conquest pacification rule of the middle east in the 13th century so to start us off nick can you lay out the the culture and the political landscape of the middle east on the eve of the mongol conquests in 1218 sure thing so um in about 1218, the situation is that the, the Middle East is 
is part of the long-term fragmentation of the Seljuk Sultanate. So back in the 11th century, you have the advent of the Seljuk Turks, who are a little bit like the Mongols in a sense. They came from Central Asia, led by the Seljuk family, but with a much wider confederation of um, Turkic nomadic groups, conquered the entirety of the Middle East pretty much and created the Seljuk Sultanate. But then during the 12th century, it broke up into various component parts as satellite states began to form and regional dynasties began to take power until the Seljuk Sultan had no power at all. And so you've got this fragmented jigsaw of Turkish ruled states across the Middle East, the Zangid dynasty in Mosul, the Anatolian Seljuks in what's today modern day Turkey. And you've got the Ayyubid Empire, which is ruled by Saladin's dynasty, not a Turkish dynasty, a, a Kurdish dynasty, but nonetheless very much ruling on as sort of a satellite state of the Seljuk Empire, uh, with much of the um, Ayyubid Empire made up of Turkish warriors, administrators, governors, and people like that. And then the, in the east, you have the Khwarazmian Empire, which is the largest of the Seljuk successor states. So that can, that covers much of the Middle East, but then you have a thin slither of territory along the Levantine coast. Um, and that is the area controlled by the Crusader states. So from north to south, um, Principality of Antioch, County of Tripoli and Kingdom of Jerusalem. But by the 1218, they're much reduced having been um, substantially defeated and reduced in size. Um, following the Battle of Hattin in 1187. And then you've got a few other smaller territories. You've got the Kingdom of Silesian Armenia, um, just the turn where the Levantine coast turns into the southern coast of Turkey. Uh, you have the Byzantine Empire, which has been in the process of being broken up following the Fourth Crusade with the western tip of Anatolia as the um, Empire of Nicaea. In the Caucasus, you have the Kingdom of Georgia, and Greater Armenia. And then around Baghdad, you have the Abbasid Caliphate, which is obviously enormously um, significant from a religious and symbolic perspective for Sunni Muslims. But territorially, it's quite small, consisting of Baghdad and a few surrounding towns. So that's the, that's, that's the map, as it were, on the eve of the Mongol invasions. And uh, without wishing to spoil it too much, it's all going to change. Scarcely, hardly anyone survives for the next survives the next fifty years. So you described in your in your book this jigsaw, this geopolitical jigsaw into which the Mongols em, enter, and yeah, I mean this is six centuries after the initial Arab Islamic conquest. But in this period, that initial uh, Arab ruled caliphate had really fragmented, as you've explained, into this really uh, a jigsaw of ethnically as well as religiously different states. I mean, the, 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 the Turkic Seljuks who've converted to Islam, the Ayyubids, as you've mentioned, the sort of the led by Kurds, the, the, the Zangids, the Khwarazmians further east, and then these various different Christian states, some of the newcomers then, the various competing crusader states, the Armenian Christians, particularly the kingdom of Cilician Armenia that you've mentioned, sort of not where... We think of Armenia on the map now, but actually just on the, as you've mentioned, sort of on the Mediterranean side of Anatolia, Georgia further east, the shrinking empire of Byzantium, and, and crucially, yeah, this, this caliphate, the Abbasid caliphate, they'd been founded in 750 and had once 
sort of stretch this enormous reach even into what's now Pakistan, but that's been shrinking back further and further, but it nonetheless survives symbolically as the 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 the, the Khalifas, the heirs, the representatives of the Prophet Muhammad. So there's this been this sort of these changing forms of, of statehood and politics, but also this notion of a of a caliph had somehow hung on symbolically. And that's, as you'll be no doubt telling us, one of the other major sort of politico-religious forms that'll be swept away. So let's zoom in closer then into this geopolitical jigsaw, as you've called it, and particularly one section, the Crusader states. So how did the Mongol conquests reconfigure this, what's by the time the Mongols are arriving, 1218, this is already a, a century a century old struggle and sometimes in that century kind of a status quo period of peace between the crusader kingdoms and this jigsaw of surrounding muslim ruled states sure so yeah it's it's fascinating because to to go back to 1218 1219 1220 so that right at the start of the mongol invasions into the middle east there's a big crusade going on the fifth crusade and the idea of the fifth crusade is a big crusading army with large contingents from France, Italy, and Germany, um, is seeking to invade and conquer Egypt, which is the economic hub of the entire Mediterranean, certainly the East Mediterranean, and then use that as a basis for the permanent conquest of Jerusalem. And it's during that campaign that that rumors begin to appear that something big is going on somewhere out to the east, and they know what's going on. It's the advance of the armies of Prester John. And Prester John is, well, we would call him a legend. They would call him a fact. It is believed that they're out to the east in the Indies, as it was described, is this priest emperor called Prester John, who rules an empire of monsters. Yes, you did hear me right. Um, and that one day he will march west to save Western Christendom or to support Western Christendom. And the garbled rumors that, that reach the Fifth Crusading camp are that Prester John's on the march and that he's not far away and he's coming to support the crusade. Now, needless to say, that is wholly wrong in the sense that it's not Prester John. But what seems to be happening is that garbled rumours of the Mongol advance get mixed with this legend. And so the Crusaders think that this army from the east is coming to, to support them. And it isn't. But that's what they think. And that shapes the Crusade because one of the reasons why the Crusaders, having conquered a coastal city called Damietta, one of the reasons they wait, they don't advance straight away on Cairo, is because they want to join forces with Prester John. But of course, Prester John doesn't arrive because he doesn't exist. But they don't know that. So this is even the rumour of the Mongol advance has a big impact on geopolitical events. And then over time, the Mongol invasions into the Middle East take a more concrete form. So originally, after the, um, the, the Mongol invasion across the borders of the Khwarazmian Empire, the Eastern Khwarazmian Empire falls in the uh, early 1220s, and a Mongol flying column goes around the circumference of the Caspian Sea 
And that really does wake people up to the fact the Mongols are a serious threat um, further west. And the next big invasion takes place in 1230, when a large Mongol army under Chormakun completes the conquest of the Khwarazmian Empire. Subsequently, he takes control over the Caucasus, and it's his lieutenant called Baichu who then defeats and forces into subjugation the Anatolian Sultanate, of, which is essentially much of central and eastern modern-day Turkey. And by that point, it's very clear the Mongols are very real and very much not pressed to John. And it's during this era that the Crusader states begin to shift their perceptions. So rather than looking forward to the arrival of Prester John, they realise this is not Prester John. In fact, the rumour circulates that, um, that the Mongols had actually killed Prester John, or at least forced him to become a client state. And they become very aware this is a very serious danger to them, just as other powers across the region become very aware that this is a serious danger to them too. This is really interesting, this, yeah, this sense of, 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 of rumours and the unknown dimensions of the East, which is yeah. something we'll, we'll think about more, really, that the Mongols are uh, themselves an unknown factor and they're coming from unknown parts of the world as well. And that's one of the things perhaps you'll be telling us, that the changes as a result of their, of their conquest and kind of connection of so much of Eurasia. The other thing I was thinking of too is that you're you're really kind of bringing us this sort of sense of uh, the this we're not just dealing here with let's say with Christianity and Islam we're dealing with a whole different range of Christian groups the Crusader Catholics the Armenians the Byzantines the Georgians these different churches these different theologies different kingdoms with their own competing diplomatic relations and their own diplomatic as well as sometimes bellicose relations with the Muslims. And among the Muslims themselves, of course, as you know, as, as, as well as I do, Nick, there, there have been the, the competing uh, versions of Islam and the competing states therewith. So you've already mentioned uh, Saladin, the, the, the Kurdish leader of the Ayyubids, and he's usually known as, you know, the great scourge of the Crusaders. But for Islamic history, it's him going back to Egypt, who's conquered the the Ismaili Shi Fatimid dynasty in the 1170s. So just a, a generation or two before this other great big, well, the arrival of the Mongol storm. So, and it's also this period that we have the assassins, isn't it? The the other um, Ismaili group that, again, we often think of as through the Crusaders, the Hashish Yun, a nickname that if I remember my medieval history correctly, it's, it's through Dante and those kind of crusader rumours coming west that the word assassin then, from the Arabic nickname, the hashish and the, the hashish eaters, these sort of fanatics, they're drugged up fanatics. Yeah. That comes into, into Dante, il perfido assassino, the perfidious assassin. So there's all sorts of these rumours going on amongst these different versions of Christianity and Islam, the different states, the different sects. And yet the Mongols are sort of none of the above. As you said, they turn out to be not Prestigeon, they're not Christian saviors, saviors, and they're certainly not Muslims either. <laughs> because when they arrived at least, and for around 75 years thereafter, the Mongols followed their own, what we call, for want of a lack of knowledge even now, centuries later, they followed their own shamanistic form of religion. So... What was the impact then on Islam of this, 
what turns out through the Mongol conquest to be this colossal, catastrophic loss of status from Islam being the religion of rulers for the previous six centuries of Middle Eastern history, at least for so much of the territory of the Middle East, to now the Muslims being ruled and not even ruled by Christians, a religion they recognize and respect, but by these shamanistic pagans. Sure. So, yeah, the, the, the early invasions and sort of the invasion phase is deeply traumatic for many parts of the Muslim world in the Middle East. Substantial loss of life, particularly in, among urban populations that resist the Mongol invasions. So that's the Mongols' rule of thumb is basically that if you resist their attack, their sieges, then there's a good chance that they will sack and attack, attack this whatever city or region they're attacking and kill a very large number of people therein. If people submit early, they're likely to be spared. But many cities resist. And as a result, there are many massacres that take place. And there's lots of raiding that takes place too, which exacerbates that. And perhaps the the most catastrophic moment for the Muslim world in the Middle East is the siege of Baghdad in 1258. So a bit of background on that. So I've, I've already talked a little bit about the advance of the Mongols into much of the Middle East. But in 1252, a new wave of invasions begins led by the brother of the great Khan, and the commander is called Hulagu, and he's basically moving into the Middle East to conquer anything that hasn't been conquered already. And he starts off, as you mentioned, with the um, strongholds of the Ismaili assassins in Persia, and then attacks Baghdad. And the loss of life there is catastrophic. It's simply enormous. And it's, it's, this is a deeply traumatic event for the Middle East and the Muslim population within the Middle East um, across this time. So yeah, and it's as you say, it's not just the invasion phase, it's the conquest afterwards, because for centuries, people have been accustomed in those regions that Islamic authorities will structure society and Islamic norms will define the way that those societies operate and suddenly that's swept away. And the Muslim communities in the area find that they're now living on equal terms with every other community in the area because they are all now equally subject to the Mongol Empire. There is, however, one, it's not a consolation, but there is one approach that Muslim communities can reach for, because in a sense, they've done this before. When the Seljuks invaded the Middle East, a little over a century before the Mongols, it's not, it's not that different a scenario. The Seljuks invade, they are also shamanistic. Now, later Muslim authors tend to describe the Seljuk conversion to Islam as being quick. Um, I would dis I think it's actually a lot longer than that. But I think what you're looking at with the Seljuk invasions is Muslim communities, Muslim leaders, Muslim um, sort of ambassadors to the Seljuks working very hard to win favor with their new rulers, bestowing upon them prestigious titles building their legit legitimacy across the Middle East, working hard as their administrators, in other words, giving them very strong reasons to want to take on an Islamic identity, an Islamic culture, an Islamic faith. And so essentially, I think they try the same thing with the Mongols. The Mongols come in, and again, the response to the Mongol invasion, once the invasion has happened, is not necessarily 
rebellion resistance um, as an attempt to, to drive out or build support for a counter-offensive. Once the invasion, once the military phase is over, then many communities try something very different, which is charm offensives, because they know it works from the example of the Seljuk Empire. And so they try to win the Mongols' favour. They try to offer themselves as diplomats or traders or merchants. They make themselves useful. They offer themselves as tutors to the Mongol um, leaders' children. They act as servants. And again, they give very strong reasons to the Mongols to first view favourably and then adopt culturally and ultimately in terms of religion as well, the faith of um, the faith and culture of the Muslim communities in the Middle East. Now, that's not to say that that's the only reason the Mongols ultimately convert to Islam, but it's part of the broader picture, I think. And it's interesting to see that Christian communities try the same thing. So there's um, an Armenian monk, for example, who um, we hear reports about him in the Mongol capital, and he tries to persuade the Mongols that Tengri, that's the, the spiritual force the spirit in the sky that the Mongols is the sort of the spiritual source of authority for the Mongols' conquests and which which is their, their main the spiritual force in their um spirituality. Um he this Armenian monk tries to persuade the Mongols that he has he has seen or witnessed a golden statement saying the Mongols can rule, but within that he tries to weave Christianity into the mix. So again, trying to use the Mongols' own identity, trying to use the Mongols' own legends and traditions as a way of trying to steer them towards, in this case, Christianity. And you have other, other examples of this with Buddhists, various different groups of Christians and Muslims and other faiths as well, all trying to make themselves useful and offer themselves as offer themselves the service or try to persuade the Mongols of the veracity of their faiths, which all of which must have created an incredible environment in the Mongols' courts, where you have this incredibly powerful set of elites who by this stage rule the better part of Eurasia. And not just that, but they have liquidated the wealth of tens of civilizations. So where gold may have hung in hung in ornate banners or in ornaments or in sort of immobile wealth, the Mongols are now liquefied that and they're spending it. And so they are enormously wealthy. And it said that even the nails in the silk tents the Mongols lived in, even those, those nails are made of gold and the tents that they create by this age can hold 2,000 people. And all of this is within the broader panorama of the Mongols' wagon cities. And that's not just a few little wagons. These are big wagons and thousands of them, an entire landscape, as far as the eye can see, of wagons. And then beyond them, millions of animals. And at the center, these huge silk tents with gold nails and ambassadors and envoys and missionaries flocking to the Mongol courts because they've realized that if they're going to be able to survive, or even better from their perspective, that they're going to be able to persuade the Mongol leaders of the importance of their causes, of the importance of their religion. They're going to have to go and make that case in the Mongol court. And so it's one of those situations where you think, if I could go back in time and pick my spot, that's got to be on the list. It, it, it must have been a truly astonishing thing to see and experience. So, yeah, so we're having this, this extraordinary conquest, violence, I think the statistic, statistic you quote in your book of 
of up to 200,000 people being killed in Baghdad alone. I mean, it's just an, an extraordinary number when we think of, you know, there are hardly any cities in Europe that this size that have that many as their total population. And consequent to this is, is a, a shift, as you've mentioned, a kind of a shift of, of ownership of wealth, massive transfers of wealth, massive transfers of power, and consequently is of influence. And as the dust of the of this Mongol storm settles then, yeah, other people, then many people are trying, as you describe so vividly in your book, whether simply to survive or to even flourish in this new uh, this new system. It's also, of course, as you've mentioned too, I mean, very vividly, a kind of really massive change from what had been. One can overstate this, but but Islam had developed as a very urban civilization. The Prophet Muhammad is founding, you know, kind of a refounding Medina, where it simply means the city, doesn't it, Arabic, as Medina to Nabi, the city of the Prophet. So Islam really develops as this great urban civilization. And Baghdad is in many ways its apogee. The, and it will never recover in the same way. The Mongols then are a nomadic people. They have cities, but the cities are, are mobile with this kind of mobile wealth. And, and of course, through this sort of synthesis of the one of the great themes of Eurasian history between the, the steppe and the sown between urban and nomadic peoples, the nomads, as they already have been, as you explained with the Saltuks, are becoming Muslim, and the, the Muslims are, are becoming nomads. Uh, or so, you know, in the sense we're getting kind of this two-way exchange of, of lifestyles uh, and economies. But there's also this exchange that you've hinted at of religions too. And what becomes then this great, the great religious competition really of, of the Middle Ages, of the, the competition to convert the Mongols. And there are many different players then because their expanses are so wide from sort of, you know, kind of the, the Buddhist regions of sort of Tibet at the southern ends of the their empire through to the Muslim and Christian lands and indeed others too. So can you talk us through some of this competition, if that is perhaps the, the apt word, to, to convert the Mongols? Sure. So the first thing to say is that there, is, there seems to be a perception um, among people at the time in the 13th century that converting the Mongols is plausible. And to be fair, ultimately, that does prove to be the case. Nevertheless, the Mongols themselves, they have their they have their pre-existing beliefs and they're entirely comfortable with them. They're not looking to change religion. And of course, the power relationship here is that they're in charge. So they can't be told to do anything. They, they won't do anything unless, unless they have chosen to do it. So all of this is coming from a recognition that they are the people in power. And one of the stories I find quite illuminating and quite interesting in this sense is a story told by a Franciscan friar called William of Rubruck, who travelled to the Mongol capital at Karakorum. And among the various uh, fascinating events and sites that he experienced when he was there, the Mongol great Khan actually organised a religious debate in which Christians, Muslims and Buddhists would debate the merits of their various religions. And so it's it's interesting to see the Mongols are not passive in the face of all these advocates coming to their court. They know what's going on and they're, they're, they're prepared to turn the tables on them and say, well, state your case, you know, just debate amongst yourselves. Why should we believe in any of your faiths? And all of this, too, ties into the Mongols' own 
world world view when it comes to religion, because the Mongols believe they have a mandate from heaven, and that mandate uh, well, from the eternal sky, Tengri. And they feel that this mandate means that they have the rights to govern all human civilization across the entire planet. And it has to be said that for the first 20 to 30 years of their conquests, that doesn't actually seem so very implausible, um, given the, the sheer extent of their conquests. But one interesting phenomenon within that is, is the phenomenon of, I'm going to use a loaded word now because it's got very strong modern connotations, religious tolerance. The Mongols treat the religions that, or the religious communities that they overthrow on an equal level, particularly at the beginning. And so in this context, suddenly, where previously there may have been hierarchies or rulers among the various ethnic and religious groups that make up any region of the Middle East, now they're all the same. So rulers and rule are now on the same on the same level. And the Mongols belief there, as I understand it, or as, as the sources seem to suggest, I mean, one of the problems we've got is we know so little of the Mongols' own mentality. We, what we know of it is nearly all through the eyes of others, and often people who are not viewing the Mongols from an objective perspective. But the way I've always read the situation is that the Mongols view all global religions as possessing spiritual power. The spiritual power of their own and so what they want from that perspective what they want is for the religious leaders of those various faith communities to channel that power into the betterment and advancement of the mongol empire in general and the health life and prosperity of the mongol imperial family in particular so it's a different way of looking at religions rather than necessarily picking a religion or deciding which ones you think are right or wrong though the Mongols are interested in those sorts of debates as well it's thinking about religions as repositories of spiritual power that can be tapped and wired in to the broader mission of the Mongol empire and this too shapes the nature of the various um, Muslim communities of the Middle East because they are right now in this environment and the Mongols are expecting them to use their spiritual powers for the advancement of their empire. At least this is from their perspective. And it has all sorts of connotations to it. I mean, it's, it's I'm segueing a little bit out of religion into sort of science, but there's an overlap here too. And that is that um, when the Mongols, particularly Hulagu's invasion of the 1250s, when his army advances into the Middle East, he gathers together as many philosophers, scientists, in some case, religious leaders, and he puts them all together in a research institute at a place called Maraga, because what he wants is he wants these intellectuals, these thinkers, to pool their collective resources from their various religious and cultural traditions. And to he wants them to use astrology to work out the future. He wants them to, to work out alchemy, because well, who wouldn't want alchemy to work? And... Um, Actually, quite some quite significant scientific advances do take place that have continued to impact um, the, the advance of science even today. Spherical trigonometry, for example, takes several steps forward at this step, at this point. But the reason I'm offering this as an example is it's this, this perception that 
we've conquered this region from the Mongols' perspective. There are a series of assets. There are religions here. They have spiritual powers. There are intellectuals. They have um, intellectual gifts that can be an asset to a Mongol empire. So it's thinking about what has been conquered from a what can we use perspective. And it seems that religions were viewed in much that way. Artisans are another example of that. Whilst the Mongols tended to sack cities at the same time, um, they always spared or generally tried to spare the best artisans because they can use them. So it's a rewiring of society. And I don't doubt that for the many Muslim, Christian and Jewish communities, as well as other communities in the Middle East, this must have been a deeply unsettling environment. Suddenly the norms of existence are being shifted dramatically. But for some, there are opportunities there too. And um, would you mind if I segue a little bit into economics? Because all of these things are a bit linked together, or do you want to save that for a future question? No, no, I mean, yeah, please do. I mean, I think that's great. Yeah, seeing how, yeah, these things, yeah, astrology and astronomy, they're the same thing there, aren't they? And the, the interplay of, of science and religion, we don't have that, that, that break which will happen centuries later. Yeah, so please bring in the economics too, yeah. Sure thing. Well, can I, can I ask, would you be interested in a question, in a story about owls? Owls. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Absolutely. I think on <laughs> nearly 50 episodes of Backpost Chamber, I don't think the word owl has come up yet, let alone a story. So, yeah, go for it. Well, it's high time we included one, I think. Um, so, there's a legend. And the legend goes like this, that before the Mongols began their conquests, they were boundaried by high mountain ranges that prevented them from expanding into the lands beyond and so they were stuck there so only one route through the mountains but that route goes through a fortress which is occupied by evil spirits and whenever anyone goes near that fortress a terrifying scream goes up which is more than enough to persuade people not to go that way so there's one path but they can't go down it until one day a hunter sets out um, and begins to chase a hare with his dogs and he's so intent on the chase that when the hare uh, runs off and he chases it, he doesn't realise the hare has run into this ruined fortress and the dogs have followed it. And so he looks around in terror. He's in this place, this place of evil that he's been warned of. And then he looks up and he sees an owl. And he looks at it and he realises that this terrifying scream was no more than an owl's call. And that there's no evil spirits here, which means that the Mongol conquests can, can now begin. So what that means is that the Mongols begin their conquest, but it also means the Mongols see the owl as a spiritual messenger. And so the Mongol elites and warriors start to want to wear owl feathers in their hats. To symbolize that, it takes an enormous importance now, let's just think about that for a moment from an economic perspective, because to any merchant within or without the Mongol Empire, suddenly you have an incredible seller's market for owl feathers. The Mongols want owl feathers. They want them in industrial quantities. And there are plenty of entrepreneurs out there willing to ob oblige. And so a continent wide cull of owls begins as hunters seek them out kill them, take their plumage, and sell them for enormous prices to the Mongol elites. And this, of course, reflects a basic rule in economics, which is that an item is only worth what someone's prepared to pay for it. If the world's most uh, 
richest people want to buy owl feathers, owl feathers will be found. Just as, say, a, a modern-day top-end celebrity, if they suddenly take it into their heads that they want to, I don't know, buy every single coconut that they can possibly find or every single sailing boat or whatever it is they fancy, suddenly there's a seller's market for that thing because it's wanted and it's wanted in bulk. So what you've got is you've got the rewiring of economic trade routes, economic preferences, trade routes begin to focus on the Mongols' big wagon cities. And they and so where trade routes may have previously followed different routes, they're following the money. Of course they do, trade routes do. And whatever the Mongols want, merchants will work very hard to make sure that they get. And in the same way, where textile manufacturers may have made clothes, now they're making tents. And so my point is this has an impact on the Middle East just as it has an impact anywhere else, that suddenly it's the Mongols' preferences, it's what they're prepared to pay for, and it's the locations of their encampments. These are the things they want, and this is where they're going to be sold. And so the economic network of the entirety of Eurasia and the Middle East within it shifts to accommodate the Mongols, just as it would shift in the present day if any major economic change took place of that kind. And so there have been various studies showing, that, showing how the Mongols' desire for pearls, for example, or silks, vastly in excess of previous demand, again, it re rewires the way in which economics takes place. And so this is another big shift in the Muslim world. For some, I don't doubt it will have destroyed pre-existing industries and trade routes, even if the Mongol invasions hadn't done that anyway. But of course, for others who have got something the Mongols want or can shift what they do to accommodate them, again, there's opportunities there, potentially. That that's so interesting. This sense of uh, of the opening of a, a kind of Eurasian wide, so to speak, common market that that reaches there, and in a sense, you know, from the foothills of the Himalayas. But no doubt, these trade routes going up. I mean, Musk, if I remember correctly, from the Musdeer and feeding into ideas of medicine via Tibetan into Islamic medicine is is another one of these natural, highly rare, hard to get hold of, and extremely expensive. Um, um, trading items that that yeah i mean again feeds in between somewhere between uh what ecology hunting trade medicine science religiosity as well and it's this great market then yeah across the mongol dominions from what we now think of as mongolia and of course beijing the northern capital there is it had been and right through then to effectively syria where the where the mongols are pushed back in these Famous, uh, famous battles at, at Ain Jalut, uh, among others, Goliath as well. And in the meantime, then the Mongols are converted. Let's get that over with, in case anyone sort of didn't realize what happened. At least on the well, they, they convert twice. The Mongol Empire is broken up. The eastern side converts to Buddhism. The people of Mongolia, despite the the uh, the decades of communism, they become uh, Buddhists, Tibetan Buddhists. And on the west, they, by the 1290s, Ghazan Khan then. The, the ruler to the to the western half, including the Middle East, becomes a Muslim. And this is a period though around him too, that, that there are lots of these other exchanges going on. My the, the figure that most interests me in, in this period is Rashid Uddin, uh, a the vizier who you know well to, to the to the Mongols in, in the court in, in what's now Western Iran, who is a Jewish convert to Islam. 
becomes the as well as the vizier, the chief minister, he becomes the this yeah. historian who tries to write a world history, Jamia Tawarikh, the the summary of all histories that he's drawing on informants from across the 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 Mongol world, which is bigger than a Muslim world, and, and one of the most interesting bits for me and many other scholars, and perhaps you too, of the Jemi Tawarikh, is the, the description yeah. of Shakamuni, who we now call Shakyamuni, the, the historical Buddha, and in many ways, you know, the, the first historical account that we have in Middle Eastern Muslim sources of, of the life of the Buddha. But... This is we're still in this world of the elites, aren't we? That's what I've asked you to talk about: the rulers, the conquerors, and the the wealthy merchants, and and, and missionaries, and and viziers, and medics, and astronomers, astrologers who who are coming to their 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 court, their tent capital, and as they settle, their kind of built capitals as well. So, what was the wider impact then of the the Muslim conquest and rule over the Middle East on? ordinary Muslims of the period. Yes, absolutely. I mean, many of the changes I just I described will have affected their, their way of life, so the, the shifting trade routes, the initial invasions, the the, the, the restructuring of, of society. The, the, the main problem we've got, though, of, of course, is that we are so much better supplied with sources for elites than we are for um farmers or artisans or other people who, who have gone through extraordinary changes and extraordinary events, but we just don't know about it. Um, perhaps one, one way to answer this um, with what, what we do know is that there are big demographic changes taking place. So the Mongols at the Seljuks before them, their arrival and so, uh, brings in and encourages further migration from the Central Asian steppe large groups of Turkmen nomads, for example. And so there is an expansion of past of the pastoral way of life across areas of the Middle East, particularly areas like southern Anatolia, the northern Jazeera, the Caucasus, areas that are conducive for that way of life. And so that shifts many people's um, daily life, the norms of existence, because suddenly there is these much, these very large pastoral groups as well. I've often wondered what the Bedouin made of um, these various pastoral communities. My, my feeling is they, they would have been in competition with them. But again, we lack the sources to be sure about that. And then there's the broader population movements as well. So the Mongol invasions into Persia led to a large scale movement of many families into Anatolia. And of course, they bring the Persian language, their Persian culture with them. And you can see this under the Seljuks, but it gathers pace under the Mongols too. And so that brings about cultural and demographic shifts in Anatolia due to the displacement of people. And even um, as far west as the Crusader States, we hear about groups who have moved to the Crusader States seemingly from Mosul and have then set themselves up um, to conduct their businesses or enterprises in places like the Kingdom of Jerusalem's capital at Acre, where previously they'd done that in um, Mosul. There's also lots of um, people trying to get to the Isle of Cyprus because as an island, perhaps you've got a better chance of surviving the Mongol invasions there. Just as Cairo expands significantly in the years um, of the Mongol invasions, again, because when it becomes clear that the Mamluk Empire, and just a bit of context here, the Mamluk Empire founded in 1250, but in 1260, it proves um, it has the capacity to hold the Mongol invasions 
And then in the later decades, it continues to hold the Mongol invasions. This is the high watermark of the Mongol invasions. And as, that, as it becomes clear, the Mamluks are actually capable of holding a full-scale Mongol invasion on, which is what they did in 12, 1281, they are signaling that they can provide a safe haven. So population movement would be another major dimension to this. But also, and I, I'm entering into hotly contested academic territory here, but the Mongol network, all those traders, all those messengers, all those missionaries, all those people crisscrossing Eurasia, they don't just bring trade goods and religions and um, and news with them. They bring other things, sometimes inadvertently. And uh, one of the things the Mongols are thought to have brought in this, some historians say this is a major, this is, this is the Mongols played a major role in this, others are less sure. I tilt towards the former at the moment, certainly. And that is that they bring diseases with them. Now, they're not doing it on purpose, but nonetheless, the argument has been made very strongly that the Mongols were provided the conduits by which the Black Death spread across Eurasia and into the Mediterranean region. And this is a disease that can kill up to 40% of total population within, within a short space of time. That's going to shape the norms of everyday existence too. And that comes in sort of at the, right at the end of my book, really, in sort of the 1340s. Um, although a case has been made for the Black Death having arrived um, in earlier years as well. But that too will influence the experience of life for many people. Not to mention as well that the broader impact of all the warfare and campaigning and counter-campaigning, which will also have caused enormous disruption for what is still, I mean, you're right, the Middle East is, by in global terms, an overwhelmingly urban society compared to others, but it's still predominantly agricultural because everywhere is. And so it's hard to imagine how farmers could have survived given the upheavals of this time, given that they have to bring their crops to harvest. But um, yeah, it's, it would have been a very difficult time, I think, for, um, for, for people across the social spectrum. Yeah, these are really important points, aren't they? That, yeah, so, you know, urban life depends upon the countryside. It depends upon the, the agrarian surplus of the countryside. And so much of what had developed over the previous six centuries, and indeed the earlier heritage of pre-Islamic civilizations in the Middle East, had been these underground water channels, what become known as the Qadis and the Khanats, and that, that had made various bits of of uh, the drier regions, partly of drier regions of Iraq and what's today Iran and Khorasan stretches into Central Asia and northern Afghanistan, made city life possible there through these very kind of complex engineering feats that take sort of water from from mountainsides, then spill off to to fields 20, 30 miles away in some cases. And, and that's something that gets disrupted too, isn't it, by, by the Mongols. And, and, and again, a whole sort of agricultural economy of, of the maintainers of these, uh, these channels and indeed the, the farmers who depend on them. In some places, in some regions, that kind of never recovers. So, yeah, yeah. there's devastating consequences on the countryside. But then there are also the... the, the the artisans, the traders who are working in, let's say, you know, the, the realm of science and technology and 
and and and these at least some of them the ones who make them into into make it into the record books the history books they seem to sort of have a let's say a more successful and certainly more historically consequential uh, uh encounters through uh through the new possibilities of, of the mongol empire yeah um yeah so it, it comes back to the issue of movement in many ways thousands of people often not by their own choice are in motion ambassadors, merchants, armies, people trying to flee disaster. There are all sorts of reasons for this, but of course they're bringing their knowledge with them. And I, I don't go down the route of seeing the Mongol Empire as this huge free trade zone. There's plenty of internal wars, particularly as the century goes on. But nonetheless, there is the scope for people to travel from one end of the empire to the other. And it is notable, it is, a, it is around this time that gunpowder reaches the Mediterranean, just as it reaches other parts of Eurasia as well. And it seems likely that with the Mongol conquest of China, suddenly Chinese technologies that previously hadn't been known or well-known outside China are now accessible elsewhere. And of course, that's going to revolutionize everything. Um, my focus is the Middle East and Mediterranean world, but within a few decades, you have the um, acquisition of gunpowder technology, later on guns, by the Mamluk Empire, the Byzantines, Ottomans, and of course, Western Christendom as well, and even into um, Islamic Spain further west. So, the, and, and gunpowder, I don't even need to rehearse the impact of that and the significance of that. And there is perhaps a deep irony there that the Mongols, in disseminating gunpowder weapons, were ultimately spreading a technology, again, perhaps inadvertently, that would several centuries later drive nomadic armies from the battlefields. But that's only one of the technologies that's being shared at this time. It's in this period that many advances in maritime architecture and navigation take place. Some seem to have happened as a result of technologies moving and being shared. The magnetic compass arrives in the Mediterranean around this time. But within these upheavals, change tends to lend itself to innovation, or sometimes forced, but it happens anyway. And it's in this century, too, that you have things like the navigational chart in the Mediterranean, which begins to make an appearance. But the Mongols can do these things self-consciously. It's not just inadvertent. So, for example, when they conquer China, the Mongols learn about paper money. And um, paper money is an interesting idea, because if you can gather everyone's gold and silver and then give them a bit of paper in return and tell them it's worth the same thing, actually... That sounds like quite an interesting idea if you're in if you're a conqueror and a governor. So in the Middle East, the Mongols think, well, it works in China, let's try it in the Middle East. So they um try to introduce paper money in Tabriz, which is their big trading city. Enormous failure. And you can see why it would be. Why on earth would you hand over your gold and silver for a slip of paper to a, a society that's conquered you? So it's a complete failure. But it is interesting to see that the Mongols are trying to think about things that they've learned in one part of their empire being applied to other parts of their empire too. And so that for me is something that I'm really interested in, how technology and why technology and why ideas of that ilk move. And I do see that very much as being spliced into the expanding worldviews of civilizations across Eurasia. And so the Mongols, for example, sent emissaries um, to places as weird and distant and far flung as the British Isles. 
um, through emissaries largely because, or Scandinavia largely because they want to acquire birds of prey, but they bring back the news of these places. And so their horizons are expanding. It's not just the Mongols, because of course, when the Islamic world, when Western Christendom and other, other civilizations across Eurasia, when they send emissaries to the Mongols in Mongolia or elsewhere, they're going to places they've never been to before. And so when these emissaries return with news or artifacts or items, then suddenly their worldview is expanding as a result. And as a, a fascinating story about um, a diplomatic exchange between the Mamluk Empire, which controls Egypt and Syria, and one of the Mongols of successor empires. So when the, the main Mongol Empire breaks up, one of the successor empires in what today be much sort of much of Russia and Eastern Europe is called the Khanate of the Golden Horde, and it forms an alliance with the Mamluks. And so when the Mamluks send their emissaries to the Mongol um, to the Mongol uh, encampment in the Golden Horde, the Mongols say, "Oh, we've heard about Egypt. Isn't it true that the Nile River?" is bridged in only one place by an enormous bone. And the bone's so big you can walk across it. Well, my reading mm. on, the, on this is that Mamluk envoys were very, very diplomatic about how they handled that one, because of course there is no bone, but they don't want to seem rude. So they just said they'd never heard of one, which is a very courteous way, I think, of handling that one. But again, the Mongols are trying to find out about new places. They're testing their legends against against people who genuinely know about these things. And you can see this thing happening in Western Christendom too. And so, for example, when, and to go back to William of Rubruck, the Franciscan friar I just mentioned, when he sets out for Karakorum, well, he's read his classics. He knows that out to the east of Christendom's borders are various uh, communities of monsters and Different and the monsters have different sort of forms. Some have long ears, some have heads in their torsos, and he 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 knows they're out there because the Roman authors have told him they're out there, but he can't find them. And so again, he's testing classical knowledge against his own lived experience. And although he hears stories about monsters from the people he meets, he has never actually meets any himself. Um, and so again, it's it's the driving back of the realms of the unknown, but from multiple cultural perspectives, as these ambassadors set out and return with news. And so the known becomes the at least semi-known as a result. That really brings to mind for me, Nick, and I don't know if to you too, but you know, as a schoolboy going to Hereford Cathedral and the famous medieval Mapa Mundi with all yeah, of those, yeah. there are, you know, visually uh, monsters out there and and people with no heads and eyes in their chest. And uh yeah, and, and this is a period, well, yeah, I mean, some of these some of these things are being empirically tested, and but still I think as you, as your book and your approach doesn't overdo that. Still many things remain unknown and unknowable. And this isn't sort of an open free market. This isn't sort of a, a, a an entirely a sort of a, a Pax Mongolicum or something. There's not there's appearance of some peace, but also great unrest and violence and uh, many other things within that peace, let alone the surrounding wars. But I want to turn finally to the you know perhaps the the the, the consequences of the Mongol invasions in 
future centuries, whether the immediate centuries or, or indeed long after. I mean, for me, when you mentioned gunpowder, I immediately thought, as a historian of what were long called across the 20th century, the gunpowder empires of the 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 Safavids of Persia, the Ottomans of Southeastern Europe and the Middle East, and the Mughal Empire of India. And the idea being, as you hinted at, that the control of this new gunpowder technology enables these these expanding settled states that have empires to push back against the nomadic armies because of sort of military economies of scale. So yeah. I wonder if you had to name perhaps the, the two most enduring consequences of the Mongol invasions in the Middle East, which two would you choose? I'll pick a short-term one to begin with. Um, the short-term one is just the total reconfiguration of the Middle East. Pretty much all the empires and societies I mentioned uh, with only a very small number of exceptions. They're all gone by the end of the book. And the people who succeed are, interestingly enough, societies that began life as people displaced by the Mongols. And so when the Mongols advanced into what today would be uh, sort of mid-Russia, huge numbers of people were enslaved in that process, and many of them were then shipped to Egypt, where they were bought in bulk, to, to, to staff the Mamluk regiments of the um, Ayyubid Sultanate. But they became too numerous. And then they overthrew the Ayyubids to create the Mamluk Empire. And so the, you can see the Mamluk Empire's rise is a direct consequence of the Mongols' own actions. And so it's interesting the Mongols themselves inadvertently played a part in their own overthrow. In the same way in Anatolia, the displacement of tens of thousands of Turkmen um, families into the western parts of Anatolia, set the scene for what would become the Turkmen Beyliks of the 14th century. And one of those Beyliks is called the Ottoman Beylik, which will become the Ottoman Empire. And so it's interesting that the Ottoman Empire itself may have originated as a community fleeing the Mongol advance. So in the short term, it's that political reconfiguration, which of course has very long-term repercussions. Of course, the um, Mamluk Empire lasted until the early 16th century, the Ottoman Empire until the early 20th. So that is a major, the reconfiguration of the area, that's one thing. The other I think is, I mean, there's so many ways, so many ways I could take this one, but I think it's also, um, I'm gonna go back to the, to the issue of expanding knowledge. People become a great deal more aware of each other. The world becomes a more connected place as a result of the Mongols, not because that's what they wanted to achieve, but that's because that's just what they ha what happens. And that has profound implications for trade and commerce and religion and all sorts of other dimensions. And just to pick one dimension of that, for example, it really does dawn on Western Christendom during this century that there are a lot of people out there who they would like to um, go out to in order to preach the Christian message. And it also occurs to people that there are some very, very wealthy societies out there that it would be very much in their interest to do to do trade with. And so we're looking here at it's, it's too early to be talking about colonization and the formation of European empires and things like that. But we're looking here at a spark that is making Western Europe look outwards in a way it hadn't done to anything like the same extent previously, which will have global consequences. Dr. Nicholas Morton, thank you so much for speaking to us in Agbos Chamber. My pleasure. Thank you so much.
Dark, 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 dark,